Hello, this is Russell Davis, and the stairway to the stars leads on this occasion towards the unforgettable face and figure of Natalie Cole. Daughter of Nat King Cole, that daughter of has always come in large inverted commas, and a singer triumphant in more styles than most of us knew existed. We'll mm-hmm. come we'll come to those. But first, Natalie, welcome again to London. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be back. We last spoke, I won't say how many years ago, uh, it might be embarrassing for both of us, but it was when things had calmed down a good deal from uh, the life you described in your first book. But since then, there have been new struggles, but at least there have been a different kind of struggle. Right. For health rather than for, uh, right, rather right. Than matters of lifestyle. You were really, uh, really very ill a few years ago. Now. I was, I was. It's been about um, probably now about five years since I um, first was diagnosed with first hep C, then kidney failure, and, and then my sister passed, and it was mm. uh, it was a lot going on. It was a tough couple of years. Yeah. yeah. People write about great singers putting experience of bad times or good into their music, into the sound they make, but can it ever be as deliberate as that? Or do you simply change as a person and rely on your voice to reflect that things are different? You know, when I first started singing, I was singing songs that were really way above my head. I remember doing a version of Good Morning Heartache, and at the time I was pretty young and still, you know, footloose and fancy free. And uh, the the uh, critic wrote that I sang the song as if I knew what I was talking about. So I think it's just a matter of acting, you know, when you're singing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've been there, um, although... For many artists, that is the truth, especially if they're singer-songwriters. I'm not really a singer-songwriter, but I am uh, attracted to songs that I feel that I can invest in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But with many great singers, the fact that they have been there is is all too evident. I mean, think of... Yeah, that's... that's... Billie Holiday with a wrecked voice and Rosie Clooney... Although she carried on singing, didn't have the same voice that she right, had. Right, right. But with you, you sound, to me, wonderfully unimpaired. Thank you. Yeah, vocally, I am very blessed that I still have this voice. I was listening to some Sarah Vaughan music, some anthology things, and how her voice changed so much over the years by the time she got to really my age. It didn't quite have that sparkle and not that I work hard on having that sparkle. I think it's just a gift from God, really, because I should be sounding like, <laughs> I mean, maybe a frog or something by now. But, you know, I've been very fortunate. I really have. Are there differences? Are there things you have to compensate for? Or really do you feel you're using the same voice? that you? Yeah, started? I think I really am. And I think that what helped me was even after 15 years of singing, I actually started taking singing lessons um, with a gentleman by the name of Seth Riggs, who has worked with, you know, Barbara Streisand, Michael Jackson, Michael Bolton, Luther, Vandross, Bette Midler, and his technique I thought was always so amazing because he's a former opera singer. And so this is the technique that he would use on his students. And uh, I think we were all surprised that it worked. And and that's what's able to, you know, keep me going because I remember when we did Unforgettable and we did a tour of over 200 days um, through the year, and I didn't get hoarse one time. That's mm. pretty amazing. Mm. And I owe that to the technique that Seth Riggs taught me. Mm. Are you one of these people who really looks after the voice and dreads flying and that kind of thing because it dries out? And... Well, f- no, that doesn't bother me. I, it's sleep. Sleep is essential. 
That really is where it's at. Uh, six to eight hours is absolutely, I think, essential. It's hard on anything less, especially for what I do. You know, I go from a crooner to a rocker <laughs> within 90 minutes. And so I, I, I really rely on that energy. And that comes from just good sleep. Yeah. And no dairy. <laughs> right. Which I cheat on sometimes, but. <laughs> <laughs> Not even ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love ice cream. <laughs> you started out as a whaler. You said you described yourself in that way. And then, well, you became many things, but a crooner is a word you've already used. When did that change? Was there a big change from one to the other? You know, um, I was always a little bit rock and roller. When I was in college, that's what I started doing, R&B and rock and roll. And I don't think we got to the crooning thing until, oh gosh, probably when I did my first record, when Chuck Jackson and Marvin Yancey wrote a song called Inseparable. And that was when I kind of slowed it down. But even then, there were still highs to those kinds of songs. because It was R&B. It was still very soulful. And I would say probably not until um, going into... The 80s, I started doing more ballads, so to speak. And, of course, by the time we got to doing a record like Unforgettable, there was a lot of crooning. <laughs> yeah. But I think people are still surprised to think that you were such a fan of, say, Janis Joplin. Oh, that God, was really big, wild stuff. Huge, huge. When I was in college, which is where I started singing, our set consisted of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills & Nash... Uh, I mean, we were wild. I lo I loved it. That was what I really enjoyed. And a lot of the things that hasn't changed is that you've been on the Grammy trail yet again. Oh. Three more nominations this, I know. this time around. Pretty amazing, yeah. yeah. And your album, still unforgettable, got one not too long ago. We know about Grammy Awards over here. We know mm -hmm. they happen. We even know maybe what they look like. But mm -hmm. I don't think we get much sense of... <laughs> what they mean to an American artist. Are they just nice things to have or can they make, really make a big difference? Well, the Grammys, you're nominated by your peers, whereas like um, the American Music Awards, which we have in the U.S., is a popularity contest. It doesn't really mean that your song is all that great. <laughs> mm. But with the Grammys, you know, I think they're looking for something that kind of sets you apart. You're a trendsetter. Um, you have really brought some kind of piece of quality to a particular uh, music, a particular project that's made everyone go, wow, this is really different. This is really special. And um, it does. I think it does increase your value. It's just like winning an Oscar. You know, the price goes up after that. It's curious, isn't it, that most of the tributes to your father have been paid by people with trios and quartets to support them because they, they go for that early repertoire of his when he had the King Cole trio and quartet and so on. But you like that stuff too because it belongs to your childhood. Well, Was um, it Kimo Kaimo and that kind of thing that you used, used to hear? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Dad would do that, but that was his one of his little signature songs. Um, Steve Tyler of Aerosmith also knows Kimo Kaimo. <laughs> wow. And we've talked about it. A number of times. And uh, we were at the Songwriters Hall of Fame uh, earlier this year in New York, and he mentioned it. He was accepting an award. And uh, he, he mentioned it, and it was just so funny because nobody knew what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just one of those guys that, 
really loves music, loves jazz, you know, loves that vintage stuff. And, um, but I think that a lot of artists never really attempted to do dad stuff for, for whatever reason. It's interesting that not, not a lot of singular artists would uh, do Nat King Cole music. George Benson probably is the most recent and one of the very few. Dinah Washington also did a version of some of Dad's things. Um, she did the Christmas song. Yes. And, um, of course, George did a whole CD. But very few have attempted to do Dad's music. The trio stuff is easy. I mean, yeah. it's an easy call. If you have that kind of a assembly, then you can really have fun with it. Because Dad did some crazy stuff, even before the days of the Nat Cole trio. You know, when yeah. he was under the name of um, Shorty Nadine, and he did some funny little, like, um, Frim Frim Sauce and yeah. stuff like that. So I, I, on the side. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think there's a lot of artists in the in that trio vibe that enjoy doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Straighten Up and Fly Ride, of course, oh, it was a kind absolutely. of family, family piece. There's a background to Right, that. yeah. Because that was your, I guess, your grandfather's sermon. Is that yeah? Uh, it might have been. I don't. I was never real familiar with that story, <laughs> but um, it's very possible. It's very possible, and it's so funny because Dad was parents. My grandparents. They were not happy about him going into the pop music world. They wanted him to stay a church boy. Yeah. But eventually, they he won them over, and. Uh, I did hear that's where that song came from. It's one of Grandpa's sermons, which is pretty funny. Do you remember that life in Hancock Park? Because you've written about it. You, oh, sure. You were not only, you know, conspicuous as being the well-to-do black family of the neighborhood, mm-hmm. but you were also the only Democrats, which is uh, another. Well, that part we didn't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, when I look back on it, yeah, it was very pretty obvious that we were definitely the only Democrats because, I mean, there was like, Oh, gosh. The John Birch Society had a home across the street from us. Uh-huh. The Shells yeah. lived down the street. The Gettys lived down the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Vandy Camps. <laughs> you know, so it was a very Republican neighborhood. There yeah. were just a few Democrats. I think there was a one family that I was friendly with. They owned a, a big grocery chain, and mm-hmm. I was friendly with their daughter. But you're right, that area pretty much was very Republican. Yes. Yeah. And in case people don't know, the John Birch Society is across the Republicans oh, yeah. and out the other side. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting. But, you know, my parents ingratiated themselves into this neighborhood. I mean, it was, I think people were a little titillated as well as curious, you know, as to what we were going to contribute, uh, if you will, to... Um, that kind of environment, it was really a lovely neighborhood. And uh, I never felt out of place, uncomfortable. I was a Girl Scout. I sold cookies. I sold cards. I knocked on doors and sold <laughs> yeah. all kinds yeah. of things. And they loved us. You yeah. know, they were very lovely. I do remember one incident, though, where my dad performed for a lady that lived down the street. And she literally lived in a glass house. It was a very unusual-looking building. And they asked him to come to lunch, like a ladies' lunch, and then they asked him to perform, which I guess he wasn't expecting. Actually, quite rude of them to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did, because that's the kind of guy he was. And he sent her a bill. 
<laughs> good for him. So good for dad, yeah. you know. But, you know, for the most part, we had uh, a lovely time in that neighborhood. And then there was probably about 10 years, hmm, let's see, maybe about five years later, there was another black family that moved in, who, of course, we became very good friends with. Yeah. Um, but um, there was a few little incidents of, of racial discourse while we were living there. Burning crosses on the lawn and um, a couple of threats and someone poisoned our dog. Oh, boy. And I'm not sure what what happened with that, but mm. my dad was devastated. I've been there to see where you used to be, and it's, still, it's, it's still nice. Beautiful, yeah. 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 I hear that they're actually making some changes to the house or something. I'm not mm. sure. But your father was a, a friend of Kennedy's and so on, wasn't oh, he? Yes. You knew him well. Oh, yes, yes. He was friends with then-Senator Kennedy. Yes. And um, when he became president, he appeared at my sister's coming-out ball at the Beverly Hilton hotel which was a big deal that was a big deal he did that as a favor to my dad yeah Yeah. but they were dear friends and that was probably the first time i saw my father cry when he was assassinated yes yeah and i came home from school and dad was sitting there in the library he was devastated absolutely devastated and it wasn't too long after that that your dad himself passed away yeah Yeah. it was president kennedy and martin luther king and yeah, Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy. The sixties yeah. were a mess, Ugh. weren't they? Yeah. Horrible. And so no wonder you had a bit of a messy time too for a mm-hmm, while. For a mm-hmm, while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said you've you once said you'd lived a life of extremes. Do you think it's easy to get away from that once you've established it as a kind of pattern in your life? Or? I think it's a choice. I don't think it's something that's necessarily born in you. I think that it's something you get used to out of habit, perhaps out of a lifestyle. As you grow up you know, you learn to make different choices. And uh, I think, especially when you have traumatic things happen, you can go either way. Again, it's a choice. You can, you know, flip out and, and, and become either bitter or crazed and do that extreme thing. Or you can kind of, you know, bring it back a little, be a little more docile, be a little more introspective. Mm. Um, surround yourself with different people. There are choices, definitely. This is not something that we're born with. We can we can figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Although when things have happened to you, things tend to keep on happening to you in some strange way. For some reason, you know, and I, I remember when I first got ill and I was very ill and, and I, I never really asked God why. You know, I didn't say, why is this happening to me? I just figured my life had been so really quite amazing that I was still able to do what I did and I loved what I did and I just asked God as long as you don't take my voice away I can figure this out show me how to learn from this experience I think that's probably the best way that you can get through something it really is your attitude Mm. yeah you became I think at an early age a song connoisseur a lyric freak in particular you said how did that was that just listening to your father's records or everybody all around? Well, Dad brought home a lot of different records that I enjoyed. You know, it's a, it's a toss up really between lyrics and melody. It's kind of hard to decide. You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know. Yeah. But I've always loved lyrics. I think the first real attraction I had to amazing lyrics was when he brought home a record called "Sing a Song of Basie," which was done by. Um, Lambert Hendrickson Ross. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
And that was probably one of the most amazing records I think I'd ever heard. And I learned how to sing, almost, listening to that record. I was probably eight or nine. And um, my sister and I would sit up and play that stuff over and over again. We just couldn't believe that it was three people who was coming out with this amazing sound. You know, they took the music of Count Basie and vocalized the instruments, which was just awesome at that time. Is there anybody you look to and hope to still get songs? I mean, some of them are at the end of their careers now, like the Bergmans, Alan and Marilyn Bergman, have done many good songs. They're lovely. But, you know, they they deserve a rest now. Yeah. Actually, I I was thinking, I'm always thinking about what will my next project be? What am I really drawn to? I think I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm over it, but I'm kind of past that. A little bit of the jazzy stuff, unless I find something really extraordinary. Like when Sarah Vaughn did a, a record of Cole Porter, that I would do. I would be interested in doing that. Or even a record of Marilyn, uh, you know, Bergman's, Alan and Marilyn's yeah. music. Um, Burt Backrack still has, you know, I mean, these are classic pieces, but hard to find. Mm-hmm. But backrack stuff will keep you awake at night. All those different bars. I know bars. he's crazy. He's absolutely crazy. He kind of reminds me of Michael Masser. <laughs> you talked about your early recordings, but the very, very earliest is that still? A, can you get hold of your uh, your Christmas record when you were six years old? That thing. Oh, I'm, I'm the little goodwill. I'm goodwill. Your Christmas spirit. Somebody has a copy somewhere. Because <laughs> that was done. It was a proper record for Capitol Records and mm-hmm. everything, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. It was a cute little one. And the other one that's so cute, I thought, was Ain't She Sweet with me and my sister and my dad. Yeah. And also it was a special little record. One thing you, I think, turned against at an early stage was playing in kind of supper club venues where people are eating stuff and they're clinking. Oh, I came up on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's probably why I don't like it. <laughs> no, but I don't know why more artists don't dislike it because it's... Uh... Well, it's not... It's. I guess in a way it's probably a good barometer on how to keep focus while people are eating and drinking (laughs) around you and you're trying to, you know, create a show. Um, So it's it's a good test because if you could get them to stop eating and start paying attention, that's a good thing. One strange thing I wanted to ask you about, partly because I haven't seen the movie in question, is you're one of the living and performing people that I know about, who's had a biopic made out of them. It was a a TV movie. What is that like to hand your life over to a scriptwriter and have it fed back to you in what must be a different form? That seems in parts preposterous, I think. It's It's kind of different. It's a little surreal to see your life played out on screen and somebody else is playing you. But I think I kind of enjoyed the process. It was a little different, but... It was important to me that before going into it, I wanted to make it very clear that I wanted it to be as accurate as possible. You know, no embellishing, no over-the-top stuff. You know, make it exactly as it was, because to me it was pretty crazy anyway, so (laughs) you didn't need to really add anything. Um, And uh, Diane Carroll played my mom. She's a dear. We've been very close for many, many years. So that gave me a level of comfort as well, you know. So it was it was really kind of nice. Not many people can say that. Diane Carroll played my mom. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, but that part of the story, incidentally, with your mother, that came to an end eventually with her death, and that had always been 
very, very difficult for both of you, mm-hmm. obviously, right mm-hmm. back to the 60s and maybe beyond. But did you find a way of getting closer? Yeah, we eventually the... reconciled. It took some some hurdles, you know, to get there. But I kind of learned, like, when it's your mom, you just have to figure it out. She's not going to change. You're going to have to change. <laughs> You know, because that's how my mom was. But the sad part was that we didn't reconcile till after my sister passed. For some reason, we all of a sudden spoke more often, became a little closer, just talked a lot more often. And by the time she got sick, we were in a good place. You know, I mean, I was able to talk to her about what she was going through. And it just happened in such a strange way. But I'm very thankful that we did have some quality time together and we were actually able to, you know, to really enjoy the last part of that um, that relationship before she left here. And uh, she was a fighter. That part of her never changed. And a very proud woman at that. And I don't know that I would be much different. Mm. When I think about it, I think there's so many things about me that are so much like my mom. It's like scary. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the subject of loss, by the way, one of the people that you helped in a sisterly fashion, almost as a big sister, I think you've said, was Whitney Houston. Now, she's kind of ran out of the luck that you'd had in surviving. Mm. It was a sad story. That was a shock. Very, very difficult. Um, Yeah, Whitney and I were close for many, many years. She was my little sister. I'd known her since she was 19. And uh, we were good. We, We had good times. We worked together, we played together. You know, she was a lovely girl. We just had fun. And then in the last probably almost 10 years, some things changed and, you know, she was um, struggling with the drugs and whatever else was going on. We weren't as close, but um, she knew that I loved her. We loved each other very much. And I think that the last time we worked together was um, like 2004. 2005 in Europe Mm. we did some shows in Germany it was me, Dion and Whitney and we had a ball and that was the best shape she was in Talking of the pressures of the business and being who you are through it all one of the subjects you must be one of the world experts on because you've had so many of them is record producers now Mm. what does an ideal record producer do or not do is staying out of the way a big part of it well, yeah, I think it's kind of like being a coach. You, you know, you have to know who your player is, what what his strengths are, what his weaknesses are. Um, and uh, you need to be able to be a nurturer, an encourager. It's a little bit like being a bit of a psychologist in the studio if you're dealing with someone who doesn't quite have that confidence or if, if you're dealing with someone who's looking for direction Sometimes, you know, not not every artist walks in and goes, I know exactly what I want to do. I know exactly how this goes. And, you know, we're not all like that. (laughs) You know, so I think a good producer is someone who massages, Mm. you know, massages the artist, makes them feel like they're capable of doing anything. um, And, you know, is very supportive, is uh, a little pushy, feeling like I know you can even do better. I know you can really, you know knock this out of the park, so to speak. And at the same time, he's a team player. Mm. I think that any good artist is looking for a helpmate in a producer. Bring out the best in me. Make me sound fantastic. And uh, 
That's what a producer should do. Well, on that subject, tell me about Rudy Perez, because his name is new to me, although I know he's extremely big, probably right. the biggest in it his line of work. It was new to me, too. It was new to me as well. I had not heard of Rudy. Um, I was recommended to him by a gentleman named Jay Landers at the label at Verve Universal. And um, I had met with a couple of other Latin producers previously. Remember, this project took over a period of 10 years. So um, meeting Rudy was really a breath of fresh air. We met over the phone, and we just had a simpatico right away. And I was so relieved because I was pretty anxious about doing a Spanish record and really not having any clue <laughs> what I was doing. I just knew I wanted to do it. You know, it's kind of like a kid, you know. I want to be a, I want to be a basketball player. Okay. <laughs> But uh, Rudy was very, I mean, this guy was so encouraging. Um, we're dear friends at this point. Um, we He really walked me through this project in such a wonderful, nurturing way. He knows the history of this wonderful Spanish music. Um, and it was his idea to approach this record almost like Unforgettable and use Latin classic songs rather than do originals or something a little more out of the box. So I came in being very traditional. And I think that it was in tribute and in honor to not only the Latin composers, but the Latin audience. Yes. You know, because otherwise they'd be asking, well, okay, we know Natalie Cole is such and such, but, you know, what nerve, yeah. you know, for her to come in and singing original Spanish songs, you know. So it was important to just kind of stick with the, with the, the rules, so to speak, and assuage the mm. audience, you know. And I loved this music. I mean, we started with 100 songs. Yeah. There's a lot of beautiful Latin music out there. And I was surprised how much of it I knew, the melodies at least, you know, even if I didn't, you know, know all the translations. And yeah. then Rudy translated a lot of the songs for me, and I was crying, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was another connection with your dad, of course, because Cole Espanol no was a famous, yeah. No question, absolutely. That music was such a big influence on me when I was a little girl. I was like eight, probably the first time I ever heard Dad sing a Spanish song, and I went to Mexico. That was my first trip, you know, outside of the U.S. And just all those things influenced me. It was very colorful. It was very passionate. I started liking Mexican food, yeah. <laughs> and it was just a great thing to have in the back, on the back burner, you yeah. know, and when it came to deciding, well, what am I going to do next, yeah. I thought, gee, what if I did a Spanish record? Everybody would think I was crazy, just like they did when I started to do Unforgettable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love Kizaz, Kizaz, Kizaz. Yeah, I love it's his, great. I, I love his version. It's a great song, but, yeah. I, but now I love your version. Yeah, it's, it's a great song, and everyone, it's so interesting how... Many Americans know that song, you know. So it kind of, when we do that, when we perform the song, it kind of opens up. Well, she just, you know, well, I know that one. I wonder what other song she's going to sing, you know. And it's it's really nice. Can you explain, because I'm sure many people won't know this even now, the connection between the Latin repertoire and, and the health crisis that you had simultaneously with your sister? Oh, well, I ended up having a kidney transplant in May of uh, 2009. And the donor family, uh, which you, you know, often with these kind of transplant situations, you don't necessarily know who the donor is or the donors don't know who the recipient is. 
But um, the family, they wanted to meet me. And uh, it turns out that they're from El Salvador. (laughs) You know, so it wasn't really significant until I got ready to do this Spanish record. And I I just kind of felt like where where this desire came from, I really don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I kind of believe in it, you know. I believe that there's a transference somehow of an energy or a passion or something. I don't believe in coincidence. Mm. But that was a drama you couldn't write. I mean, you couldn't make it up because you turned the transplant down at first because you were so fixed on comforting your sister who was dying. Well, um, what happened was... I was, well, I didn't turn it down. What what happened was I just didn't know what to do. It was just a crazy, awful day. Um, my sister became ill, and the last time I saw her alive was Mother's Day. And seven days later, she was gone. But they called me while I was sitting with her in the hospital. And uh, they said, can you come to to the hospital in a couple hours. And I was, I mean, my whole family was there. Everybody was, you know, distraught. And I couldn't, no one could make any sense out of anything. And uh, I had to call somebody that could be objective because I didn't really know what to do. And I called my business manager. Four o'clock in the morning, I woke him up and I said, they just called to say they have a kidney. And I'm sitting here with cookies. She's in a coma. What do I do? I can't leave her. And, And he said to me, she would want you mm. to go get this kidney. Mm. And so that's what I did. And they didn't tell me she had passed until the day after the surgery. So this, the Spanish language album is another monument it's to your tribu- I, I did. I, I actually made it a tribute to her as well. Absolutely. Yeah. What's interesting is that this language translates to so many different parts of the world. The Brazilians love it. The Europeans love it. We got interviews from Australia. I mean, you just don't know, you know, where this music, who it's going to touch. It's really, really neat. And we were in Warsaw over the summer. And I can tell you, by the time we got singing Oye Como Va, the people were standing on their chairs singing the song. And I was like, how do these people know they're Polish? (laughs) You know, but... When it comes to music, I've always said that music is the universal language. Yeah. Yeah. But you studied the Spanish very closely because I'm, I'm not a Spanish speaker, but it sounds it convinces me. Whereas your dad, you know, he, yeah, he, he was a little more, he, yeah, he was a little, was a little more, more literal, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, my Spanish is definitely better than his was, but yeah. right. <laughs> but yeah. I've always been good with accents, and um, it was was very gratifying to hear that um, my my Spanish was good because we. You know, we considered getting a coach. Um, but uh, Rudy heard me singing um, Besame Mucho. Yeah. And he said, you know, you don't need it. You're fine. We'll, we'll, you know, he just guided me a little bit, you know, with some of the phrasing. But I got it. I got it. I just, I felt it. I, I was, I really was transported into another world with yeah. this music. And it just felt really, really good. Frenzy too. There's a fascinating, oh, fascinating chunk before the famous melody song. comes along. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the prelude, yeah. like they did in in the wonderful American songs. You know that uh, something that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the rest of the song. You know, but yeah, Frenzy is a lovely, lovely song as well. There's so many cool songs on this record that I absolutely love. Well, beautifully done. Uh-huh. Like everything you do. Thank you very much, Natalie, for coming in. This was my pleasure. Absolutely.
That was the wonderful Natalie Cole. I'm Russell Davis. And my thanks to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This was a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio, and on 88 to 91 FM.